Hey, Door Creek, how are you doing this morning? Good. What a beautiful week of weather, huh? Well, that's behind us. Brace yourself. Hey, after this winter, 40 below, are you kidding? We better not complain, right, when it's even humid. Hey, great week of uh, ministry here at this place. Maybe you've seen some of the Chicago Eagle coaches because we launched our soccer camp to kids uh, around Madison. We got a camp at Warner Park and just down the road from there, and it's a great opportunity for us to serve kids in our community, and as we're teaching them the game of soccer, to teach them about God's love for them and Jesus. Our middle school students are gathering just after this service to head over to Blackhawk for a week of ministry called Madison Mission. And that's an awesome time for our junior high kids to serve right here in the city. And then on Thursday, RD took a group of high school students. Here's a picture of them at the airport, 4.30 in the morning on Thursday, as they embarked to Spain, where they're serving with one of our partners, the Ellers, and using English as an opportunity to teach kids over in Spain and then to teach them about Jesus and his love for them. So thanks for your generous giving in this place. These are the kinds of ministries that you're supporting that are bringing about life change here and around the world. All right, our message today is entitled, Spoiling Forgiveness. And I want us to think about um, this whole concept of being wronged, of being snubbed, of being mistreated. Uh, Did it happen to you this past week? (laughs) Did it happen again? Yeah. Did it happen again? Was it the same person? Have you noticed that there's kind of different levels of being snubbed, mistreated? So um, in, in, in various ways, it's kind of hard and harsh and toxic, but there's different levels of toxicity, right? So there's the, there's the stuff that is kind of petty, and we might even not even know the person. It's just kind of random, and it just kind of bounces off of us, like a little Teflon, not a big deal. At least on a good day, not a big deal. And then have you noticed that some of those like little things that are petty on not a good day become, wow, a big deal. And then all of a sudden you observe like there's this volcano of emotion that just kind of welled up and kind of there's a little meltdown that went on. But then there are these things where we go, no, but then there's another category. There's a whole nother level of wrong and being wronged. And, and it's the stuff that usually... My, my experience is usually it's people we have relationships with, we're closer with. And because of the closeness of that relationship, they can get to places that a lot of other people couldn't get. And those wounds cut us to the core. And those wounds seemingly don't heal. Do you have one of those? Well, what do we do with that stuff? What do we do with somebody wronging us, snubbing us, mistreating us, doing something really mean. What do we do with that? What do you naturally do? I think there's a group of us that go, man, I I just kind of, honestly, I'm a key piece at any price. So if I have to ignore it, pretend like it never happened, sweep it under the rug, whatever it is, I'm moving away from it. Others of us are going, that's a bad idea. You need to just attack it. And you just gonna need to move towards it, and we're, we're not we're not like running from it. Remember the fight flight continuum. We're like, all right, we're gonna make this thing right. You hit me. Watch this. 
I know how to hit back. And, you know, we're scheming our strategy of how we can get back, how we can get even. And then there's some of us that actually have figured out by the grace of God how to work out these things in healthy, God-honoring ways. Consider this, because it's just a thought I have. I don't know if it's right, but I think it's right. How we do with this kind of stuff, people who've wronged us, really will become determinative of the kind of experience we have in life. So these things are either going to make us bitter and more bitter, or by the grace of God, they're going to make us better. So where are you at on that continuum as we think about forgiveness and extending mercy and grace to people who have hurt us and maybe continue to hurt us? Are we moving up that, I, by the grace of God, I think I'm getting better? Or, man, I feel like I just, I'm getting more and more bitter. Bitterness is dominating me. So Jesus has a story to talk to us about forgiveness. It's the story of the un merciful servant. Grab your Bible, Matthew 18. It's a kingdom parable. And when we ever, whenever we run into a kingdom parable or Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God, you hear kingdom of God, I want you to think king. Who's God's king? Jesus is God's king. I want you to think about the character of the king. I want you to think about his rule, his reign, how it is present today in people's lives and hearts, and yet it's not fully been established. It's, it's not yet. It's future. I want you to think about not only the norms and values of the king, a kingdom, but I want you to think about what his expectations are of those who live under the king's reign, the citizens of the king. All right? So get to Matthew 18, 21. The context previous to it, two stories, the man who loses a sheep, he's got a hundred and he goes out to look for the lost sheep and God says, that's me looking for people who've strayed from me. I've got a heart of love and compassion and I chase down people who are lost. And then in the next section, 15 to 20, he teaches his disciples what to do when people sin against you. He says, you go and you point it out with the goal to win them over, win them back into a right relationship with God and with you. And he puts the steps on how you do that. And in the heels of that, Peter, the disciple, was thinking, huh, what about the guy that keeps doing it? How many times do I have to forgive him? That's his question. Check it out in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancel the debt, and let him go. So Peter's got an easy question. Jesus, when somebody hurts me, and maybe they even ask 
for my forgiveness. Is there a limit to that? How many times? Now, he picked seven because it was a good day for Pete, and he wanted Jesus to know that he's had a big impact on his life because all the religious leaders of the day were saying three times on the fourth time, forget it. You don't have to forgive him anymore. Like, man, I like that kind of teaching. And Peter's going, maybe that's not right. I don't think that's right. Jesus is probably more than that, right? So he doubles it, adds one. Seven sounds like the perfect number, right? He says seven. And Jesus says, you got the wrong question. You got the wrong question. He says, uh, you're worried about how many times you need to forgive? The better question is, Peter, do you understand how much you've been forgiven? Because when you understand that, you know the answer to the first question you had. You go, well, wait a minute, though. But he gave him a number. He said 77. Actually, it could be translated 77, or it could be 70 times 7. Math students, answer is 490. Jesus gave a number, but in giving the number, he was just saying, look, there is no limit to forgiveness. Like, you're going to get to the point where you go, ha, that's it. That was the 78th time. That was 490. I've been keeping track. No, Jesus is saying, look, there is no limit to forgiveness because I'm never going to ask you to forgive someone more than I've forgiven you. So here's the sermon in a sentence that I'm going to get down to three words. When we extend mercy and forgiveness to someone who's hurt us, it's a clear sign that we've received God's mercy, that we are forgiven because, here are the three words, forgiven people forgive. Say that to your neighbor. All right. So then the question is, do we? Do we? This is really important. You've heard a lot of sermons on this in your life, perhaps. Or maybe you just need to hear this sermon. There's, there's a relationship that you went to when I asked the question, what do you do when someone mistreats you? It wasn't hypothetical for you. You don't have to live very long to get beyond the petty to go, whoa, like to the core. That wound is still there. And, and that relationship is impacting. You go, no, 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 it's not. Y- yeah, actually, don't be so sure. It has the, the ability to just color and impact all of our relationships. And, and I want us to hear God's great teaching. So what Jesus does in this story is he introduces us to a merciful king who extends mercy and forgiveness. Then he introduces us to an unmerciful servant, having received this forgiveness, refuses to extend it to a fellow servant. And then we see the consequences of what happens if we refuse to go down this path of mercy and forgiveness. If we refuse, what are the consequences? So we start with the merciful king. And we get it, right? There's a guy who owns a lot of money, but we don't get how much money it is. When the, when the first century, when Peter and the disciples heard this, they went like, are you kidding me? 
Because actually the NIV doesn't even use the literal word talents. Because we don't know what is the talent. How much money is a talent? A talent was equivalent to 15 years of wages. So 10,000 times 15. 150,000 years of wages is what this guy owed him. And we need to just get, get this. Because Jesus is probably using hyperbole to make a point. What's the point? This servant really messed up. Point number one. Is that clear? Whatever it was, whether he embezzled it or just mismanaged it, that was a big oops. I mean, we've seen some big oops on Wall Street. This is a big oops. Because let me tell you what $150,000 is in our economy. 150,000 years of wages is in our economy. At $40,000 a year, that's $6 billion. Now, Gates and Buffett may be able to handle that, and that's it in the world, right? That's like, are you kidding me? I don't even know how big that is, so I Googled it. What does a billion dollars look like? And some artists actually put together what a billion dollars looks like. Check this out. 12 pallets of $100 bills. There's $10,100,000 bills. That's just $1 billion. You need six of those pictures to get you... That's a lot of money. Jesus wants us to know that that guy messed up and that that guy had a debt that there was no way he could what? Pay it off. There's no way. He had a debt he couldn't pay off. And the third reason he told it is so that we would see the character of the king. And man, do we like that kind of king, that he would take compassion and cancel the debt and let him go free. That's the kind of king I want to follow. That's the kind of king, fathers, that your kids want to follow. That's the kind of leader at work, at school, that the team wants to follow. A merciful, compassionate king. So what happens? Well, verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. That's the word denarii, plural for denarius, which is the word we ran into last week because that was a day's wage for a day laborer. So a hundred days wages compared to 150,000 years of wages, right? This guy owed him a hundred silver coins, hundred denarii. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Does this sound familiar? Be patient with me and I will pay it back. The very words he used to the king. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison, into debtor's prison, until he could pay the debt. Now, what I, what I want you to notice here is here is a story of spoiling forgiveness. This guy received it, but he just left it on the shelf. And it went bad. It spoiled. Notice the immediacy of this story. When he went out, what's the context? Where has he just been? Class? He's been with the king. What happened when he was with the king? Oh, man, he forgot it all. His debt. The king's mercy, when he went out, he found. Aha! Same word earlier in the chapter when it says that the shepherd found 
the lamb that was lost. It, it describes intentional pursuit of something that's missing. He didn't just like walk out and he bumped into the dude that owned him a hundred days wages. And he said, wow, that's really interesting. Hey, don't you owe me money? No, he went looking for this guy. And when he found him, he grabbed him, he choked him, and he said, pay up. And when the guy pled for mercy like he did, for patience, a little bit more time to pay it off, he refused. Forgiveness is a choice that he refused. And the amazing thing is, he left the king's chamber unchanged. Nothing happened at a heart level. He's the same guy that walked into that place when he walked out. He was a petty, cruel, harsh, violent, merciless, small-hearted man that was weak, that was weak, unwilling to forgive. He looked strong, sounds like strong, grabbing, choking, demanding, throwing in prison. He was weak. He was weak. Forgiveness is a choice, a choice that he refused. So what happens? Well, there's outrage. When we hear it, we're going, this is ludicrous. Are you kidding me? What happens in Jesus' story? Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. Of course they were. And went and told their master everything that had happened. Everything. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancel all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had had on you? The answer to that question, class, is yes. Yes, you should have. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So what are the consequences? The consequences of refusing to forgive in a word is misery. So what happens to him? He's turned over to the jailer to be tortured until he pays off the debt. When's that going to (laughs) happen? Never. Are you kidding me? 150,000 years? It's never going to happen. It's misery today. It's misery till the end, to the very end. But he thinks he's free to do that. He felt like it was within his rights. I mean, the dude owed him 100 100 days of work, pay. He had it coming. He thought he was free to do this. The interesting thing is, when you go down this path of, of bitterness and your attitude starts setting those actions in place that get repeated time and time again, where you seek payment and revenge and hitting back, then what happens is those actions become habits that define us and, in a sense, control us. And the truth is, he was free Only to do that, he was not free to forgive because that's all he knew. He'd become a slave to his passions. And he thought he had the right to do that.
So what happens is, when we choose to say, no, I'm not going to forgive him, then what we're doing is we're allowing the pain of that offense to take root in our life. And that root isn't static. It grows, the Bible says. Check out this verse. Check out the image in Hebrews 12, 15. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. It grows up. So the seeds are planted when we decide, I'm not going to forgive them. And as we continue and remain in that defiant posture, they don't deserve it, whatever the, whatever the, the logic is in our minds of why we're not going to do this, that begins to grow. And that root, have you seen it in your life? Have you seen it in somebody else's? It grows to be this sequoia of bitterness. And so whenever you get together with that friend, with that aunt or uncle, your mom or your dad or your brother, your sister, the same person comes up. The same story is recounted and rehashed and they can't move behind it and beyond it. Why? Because they haven't sent it away. They refuse to do that thinking somehow that would be better because what does the world say? Revenge is sweet. What does the Bible say? It's a bitter poison. It's a bitter poison. Han Lamont had the great quote about an unforgiving spirit that goes like this. It's like drinking rat poison, waiting for the rat to die. It's like craziness. It's craziness. Drinking rat poison, waiting for the rat to die. And so we allow this poison that has come from the offense to remain in our life instead of sending it away, sending it away. And by the way, that sending it away is an ongoing process that begins today. It is a decision. It's a commitment of my will that I am not going to let that muck up my heart. My heart's mucked up enough. I don't need that junk coming into my heart. And so I'm going to keep pushing it away. We go, I don't know what's wrong with me because I feel like I got to keep forgetting. No, that's forgiveness for someone who's deeply wounded you. You got to keep doing it. I said to a friend after the service, so how's it going with that guy who wronged you? He said, I saw his twin brother this week. It all came back. You don't even have to see their face. You just go to the place. You go, oh. And then, then we got an enemy. Who, like he's into COD packages, right? So he sends us these packages of, of that story, of that incident, of that person. Hey, just, I just wanted to remind you what happened. And it all comes back again, right? Got to keep sending it away, choosing mercy. The consequence, if we don't, is misery, is torture. We become bitter. That which we think we have the right to do becomes that which rots us from the inside out. Each week, Kevin Tunnel was required to mail a dollar to a family that he'd just as soon forget. The requirement was he was to make the check out to their daughter and mail it each Friday. It would be put in a scholarship and he was to do this for 18 years. From 1982 to the year 2000. The reason Friday is because that was the day when he was drunk and driving that he killed their daughter. 
The reason 18 years is because she was 18. He was 17. She was 18. They filed suit. They asked for $1.5 million, but settled for $936. Because that's how many weeks there would be in that 18-year period. He served time. He did community service for a year and then six more years warning kids and students about the dangers of alcohol and driving drunk. But there were some times where he forgot to send in the check. And when he did, the parents went to court, brought him in. Sometimes he had to do a little bit more jail time. And in one of those situations, he went before the judge and said, your honor, I'm not trying to defy your order. I just need you to know this whole thing is a nightmare for me. It's overwhelming for me. And he turned to the family and he says, look, I've got a box of checks for the rest of the payments and I've added another year. Would you just take them? Would you just take them? And the parents said, well, it's actually not about the money. It's about penance. And you just need to know, we're going to keep doing this. We expect it every Friday. And if it doesn't come, we're going to court. Now look, if, if you and I haven't lost a child, there's no way we can understand the pain of their loss. There's no way. Some of us actually understand that here. And whether we can understand it or not, nobody can know what's driving that. What was the motivation behind the 936 payments? What I can be sure of is they were wrestling with this whole thing of how do you respond to someone who took the life of our daughter? And what's at the heart of human nature is somebody's got to pay for this. And the hurt was so great. And so what, what I wonder is, so what happened September 2000 when he wasn't obligated to send another payment? Did, did the couple come away going 936 was enough? That really was. Where did they find out? Actually, it wasn't. And then I wonder how many payments we're requiring of the people who've wronged us. And we have those, don't we? We have them. So I wonder what we've been drinking. Rat poison? God's mercy? Let's go back to the questions as you kind of bring it home. Peter had a question? Jesus had a better question. Jesus' question is, Mark, do you know, do you really understand how much I've forgiven you? Do you know that? So that kind of crazy number, which I think is hyperbolic to make the point, is six billion. That was mine. A debt I couldn't pay back. Do you, do you understand that, Mark? That's what I've forgiven you. Do you understand that? 
There's nothing in this world that sets us up to understand it because we trivialize the things that have brought us into debt with God. We, we just live in a world that goes, not a big deal. Everybody does it. Come on. There's a huge deal. God had to send his son to pay for that. Now, the second question ties with the first. And the second question is, do you know that you've been forgiven? Do you know that you have God's forgiveness? Now, the, the danger of using words like we just sang, I have decided to follow Jesus, is we go, oh, yeah. Because when I was like, and we go to a time, an event, and maybe it was Christian camp, maybe it was kneeling inside of your bed, you go, I decided to follow Jesus, and I, and I asked Jesus into my heart. Which I'm not even sure what that means. Isn't that biblical language? And Jesus, Jesus said, that's not how you work out the answer. Stick to the text. How do we know we're forgiven from the text? What does it say? That I forgive. Because forgiven people forgive. So I can tell you if we're not forgiving, we really don't know how much we've been forgiven. And we've lost the comparison between 100 days and 150,000 years. And we had the 150,000 year debt. We've forgotten that. And then the final question I'd ask is this. So are we following in the steps of this merciful king who's pointing to King Jesus? Or are we following in the steps of an unmerciful servant who would be king? Who's flexing his muscle and, and seeking justice and grabbing and choking and demanding and throwing the man into prison? I follow the king. Or am I acting like a king? Here's what I know. There is a great propensity in me to act like a king. I can do it in my marriage. I can do it with my kids. I can do it with the staff here. I can do it in all kinds of situations on the road. And here's what, what, what happens is, it doesn't work out well. I'm not a good king. And people around me don't even know I'm supposed to be king. And so I'm always frustrated that people don't know I'm supposed to be king. I'm a lousy king. We were created to be servants. Servants rule, not kings. So when you're following the king, well, then let's go back to the text. What did the king do? He chose mercy. He could have chose justice and anger. He ends up there. They're both legitimate. When he throws him in jail and he tortures him, he had the right to do that. There was an offense. He had the authority as king and judge to do this, but he didn't choose anger to begin with. And some of us don't understand that there's more than one choice. We think, well, the only thing you can do is be angry. And by the way, we feel really comforted that there's a Bible verse. And we say, and the Bible does say, be angry and do not sin, Ephesians 4.26. Man, we've memorized that one because that could come in handy. And what we forgot is, yeah, there are things. In fact, we probably live in a culture where we should be more angry about things that we're not angry. We, 
Righteous anger. You know what the, the, the people call it? Righteous indignation. And we go, well, that sounds good. I, I want to be like that. Righteously indignant. And we feel like, well, that's good. Well, the problem is we're not God. We're not perfect. And we'll muck it up big time if we camp out on that. Yeah, we can be angry. But you know what? It's not the only card that you can play. That took me a long time to learn that. There's this beautiful gospel option called mercy. And mercy doesn't sweep it under the carpet and act like it never happened. Mercy is eyes wide open to what's happened, the offense, and you forgive. It's a completely different option. So what does it look like to choose mercy? Well, follow, follow the text. What did the king do? When he saw the man, he took pity on him. It's the word compassion. He was moved with compassion. What does that mean? He wasn't just focused on the 10,000 talents that this guy had just squandered. What he was focused on was the man, his wife, his children. He was moved with compassion. When somebody wrongs me, I am so laser focused on the wrong. And I allow that wrong now to help me paint a caricature of the person so that I can demonize them to justify why I should be so outraged over what they've done. I am so laser focused on the offense. And compassion moves beyond the offense to the offended and has compassion. It's what Gary Jartsfar did when he was confronted with this horrific story that had to do with his dear bride, Marjorie, who on a fall morning was just biking around town. They were Wycliffe missionaries, translating God's word for people who didn't have it in their language. And um, young, young Shannon Etheridge was on her way to school. She didn't get very far. She was distracted. And before she knew it, the unimaginable happened. She ran over Gary's wife. And um, it was so awful for this young 16-year-old that she was repeatedly just struggling with taking her life. She couldn't imagine what she's done and how to move forward. And when it came to the courtroom, Gary was just, he just lived this out. He was moved with compassion for this 16-year-old girl. And he asked the judge to drop the charges. And he asked this girl to move on in her life, giving her hope and kind of giving her charge. My wife loved God and served him. And now it's your turn to follow in her steps. Shannon Etheridge has a powerful ministry to women. She's an author. God used that. That man's compassion to radically change her life. Mercy is so much better than rat poison. The Bible says the kindness of God leads to change, to repentance. I don't think we've ever figured it out that my kindness to this person who doesn't deserve my kindness right now could actually change this person. 
actually change them. He's moved with compassion. But that's not the only thing, right? He canceled the debt. He sent away the pain. At great cost to himself, he cancels the debt. And for us, it's this whole thing of sending away, and it's refusing the rationalizations that we have. Oh, man, are we creative in coming up with a list of 50 things of why it is that we have the right to refuse to forgive them, right? They're not even asking for it. They don't acknowledge it. What they did was wicked. They don't deserve it. They repeatedly do this. They're trying to hurt me. They're not just hurting me. They're hurting my family. If it was just me, I'd forgive them. But what they've done to my whole family, I can't do that. Hey, if I forgive them, they're not even going to know that they need God's forgiveness. So I got to keep the pressure on. Justice has got to be served. That's not our role. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So we canceled the debt. That doesn't mean that you couldn't ever exercise your legal right in a courtroom. That doesn't mean that you have to trust this person. That doesn't mean that that person becomes your best friend because you've forgiven them. But you forgive. You cancel the debt. And the last thing he did is he was moved with compassion. He canceled the debt. And the last thing it says, he let him go. What was his first option? Throw him in prison. You know, sell him as a slave and everything he owned and everything he had. He let him go. He let him go free. And God's been saying to me this week, let it go. Let it go. Here's where God's been working on me. One and three. Be moved with compassion. Get beyond the offense to the offended one, the offender, and let it go. Because you know what I realize? I realize that I've been working this forgiveness thing, doing the work, trying to pray blessing on this person who's deeply wounded me. But man, if I played the tape back of the years since that happened, I have brought that thing up a lot. This story, the offense. And God's saying, Mark, let it go. I think he's saying more than that. Maybe you think you've forgiven him and maybe you haven't. Let it go. Let it go. Someone said, forgiveness is coming to the understanding that I no longer have to hit back. And man, we live in a world that is so ready for people to stop hitting back, right? All around the world, from Malaysia to the West Bank to Jerusalem to Sudan, Congo, Colombia, the inner cities of the world. And we have an opportunity by the grace of God to do this. But if we're honest, we'll say two things. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I even want to. And because that sounds really bad, we go to make it feel better. I don't think anybody can do this. I mean, really? I don't think anybody can do this. And that's where we got to get our story radically connected to God's story. And this parable is our story. That's our story. 
that, that person we're having so hard a time forgiving, they owe us a hundred days work. And we've acted like kings. And we own that $6 billion debt. And God sent his son, the promised king, who came as a servant. And what did he say? Mark 10, 45. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a what? A ransom, a payment to do what? Set us free. And remember what he said on the cross? It is finished. Doesn't mean anything to our American ears. In the Greek, it means paid in full. Paid in full. What did he pay in full? Our debt. He bore it. He paid the penalty. He suffered the consequences for our sin. And as we put our faith in Christ that he died for us on the cross to pay that which we could never repay, he gives us a new heart with new desires. I want to do this. I want to be a person who is a merciful person. I want to be a person who's forgiving and committed to that. And he gives us new power, the spirit in us. So heed the warning. And by God's grace, may none of us walk out of here being confronted by the king's mercy, unchanged. Check the labels of what you're taking in this week. There's a huge difference between God's mercy and rat poison. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you for your word. It's a needed word, a word that makes much of you, of your kindness, of your grace. We bless you for that. We confess we trivialize sin, our own sin, our debt. We think it's really as manageable as that student loan or that credit card debt right now. Open our eyes to our need that there is no way we could have satisfied that debt. Lord, open us up again to the forgiveness that we've received and may we be people who are conduits then of your mercy and of your kindness. And use that, Lord, to change, to change us, to change those people, those relationships. Help us, we're weak here. We've got some serious spiritual muscle memory that's taken us in the wrong way. Give us new hearts, give us new strength for your honor and your glory, amen.